In June 2022, NASA's Artemis I mission will launch from the NASA Kennedy Space Center in Florida. This mission will send an uncrewed Orion spacecraft around the moon. It will be followed in May of 2024 by Artemis II, where a four-person crew will fly around the moon and return to Earth. This dress rehearsal will pave the way for Artemis III, which will launch in 2025. This mission will send a four-person crew to orbit around the moon and send a two-person landing party down to the lunar surface. This will be the first time that astronauts have set foot on the moon since the Apollo era. And as NASA indicates, they will send the first woman and the first person of color on this historic mission. Many Artemis missions will follow, which will establish the necessary infrastructure to create a sustained program of lunar exploration. In short, roughly 50 years after human beings last set foot on the moon, they will be returning, but this time with the intention of staying. I'm Matt Williams, and this is Stories from Space. The question that is often asked in the context of spaceflight and the history of space exploration is why has it taken us so long to go back to the moon? The Apollo program officially wrapped up in 1973, but it was in 1972 that the last mission, Apollo 17, sent a two-person astronaut crew to the surface of the moon. The footprints and flags left behind by the Apollo astronauts, as well as numerous scientific experiments, as well as the descent stages of their lunar landers. And here we are, 50 years later, plotting our long-awaited return to the moon. That won't happen for another three years, but just about all the components are in place, and whether or not it happens by 2025, or the original proposed date of 2024, the Artemis missions are due to happen. And the intent is quite clear. We're going back to the moon to stay. We're going to build the infrastructure that's going to allow us to stay there longer, to return there more often, and essentially conduct the kind of research on the lunar surface that, until now, we've only ever been able to do aboard the ISS. The European Space Agency even plans to build a habitat around the South Pole Aitken Basin, which will serve as the successor to the ISS, known as the International Moon Village. Along with the Lunar Gateway, an orbiting space station, which is where spacecraft will dock when transporting astronauts to and from the moon, all this infrastructure will also help facilitate missions to Mars by the 2030s. Nevertheless, the question remains, why did it take this long? Why did it take this long to go back there? Why has it taken it this long to plot the next major leap, which is crewed missions to Mars? In order to answer that properly, you have to do a bit of a deep dive into the history of spaceflight. The early 1970s, when the Apollo program was wrapping up, was something of a twilight era. NASA had officially won the race to the moon and declared victory in the space race. The Soviet Union had officially ceded the race to the moon years earlier, but they nevertheless attempted to compete with NASA in the development of three-stage rockets, 
crewed spacecraft that could travel to the moon, and lunar landers that could transport the astronauts to the surface. However, this proved unsustainable for the Soviet Union, and these plans were abandoned. Similarly, NASA found itself in a changing budget environment by the 1970s. The robust budgets of the previous decade were no longer an option. The Vietnam War had dragged on for 10 years and inflicted a terrible toll in terms of lives and resources. And so, both NASA and the Soviet Union were forced to go back to the drawing table and consider the future of their space programs. And since the space race had been all about getting there and getting there first, the next logical step seemed to be, how do we stay there? And so from this, the Soviet space program and NASA began working in the early 1970s on the development of technologies and strategies for long-term durations in space. Rather than rockets and spaceships and space capsules, the focus was now on space stations and space shuttles. Much like with Sputnik and Vostok, the Soviets took an early lead. Between 1971 and 1986, they managed to launch a total of six of their Salyut space stations. These stations were small by modern standards and could accommodate a crew of three. Over time, the Soviets used these stations to develop expertise in rotating crews. Eventually, they set a record with their Salyut 6 and 7 space stations. All told, the Salyut 6 space station was occupied by 33 cosmonauts for a total of 683 days. Salyut 7, which remained in orbit even longer, was occupied for 816 days and managed to accommodate a total of 26 cosmonauts. The Salyut 7 space station also set a record for longevity, remaining in orbit until February of 1991. The lessons learned from the Salyut space program eventually went into the creation of Mir, this Soviet-era space station was launched in 1986 and would remain the largest space station in orbit until the creation of the ISS. NASA, meanwhile, deployed their own space station in the form of Skylab. This station was launched in 1973 and would remain in orbit for six years. It was operated by three separate three-astronaut crews and allowed NASA to also develop expertise in sending crews to orbit for extended periods of time and conduct experiments that could only be done in low Earth orbit. While NASA had originally intended to follow up on Skylab with the creation of the Freedom Space Station, these plans were scrapped in favor of participation in an international space station. Construction began in 2000 with the joining of the Russian and American segments, and several modules have been added since by other international partners. Meanwhile, NASA and the Soviets both worked on their own concepts for reusable space planes. These were intended to service their space stations by delivering crews and supplies, but also to reduce the overall cost of sending payloads to orbit. In this case, it was NASA who took the lead with the development of the space shuttle program. The Soviets created something very similar with their Buran space shuttle, Unfortunately, it never saw service. The space shuttle, meanwhile, proved intrinsic to the construction of the ISS and for sending crews there from American soil. With the success of the space shuttle program in the ISS, NASA began to contemplate its next moves in the early to mid-2000s. At this point, it was understood that any future endeavors in space would rely heavily on international cooperation as well as cooperation between the government and the private sector. Between 2005 and 2018, several plans were proposed, 
but the ultimate goal remained the same. As a first step, NASA would need to retire the aging space shuttle. Second, a new heavy launch system would need to be developed that could send astronauts back to the moon and other locations in deep space. Third, the necessary infrastructure would need to be built on the moon to facilitate these missions. The most recent version of this plan is Project Artemis. Once it is complete, NASA will have the ability to send astronauts to the moon on a regular basis. It will also have the necessary components to start sending astronauts to Mars. In particular, there's the Lunar Gateway, the orbiting space station. It is here where the deep space transport, which is still in the conceptual design phase at this point, will dock. Astronauts arriving at the Lunar Gateway in an Orion space capsule will then transfer this capsule to the deep space transport, which will rely on solar electric propulsion to take them to Mars. There are also plans to build a space station at the other end, where the astronauts will once again dock and use a reusable lander to travel to and from the surface of Mars. If all goes as planned, NASA intends to conduct these missions by the early 2030s, with launch windows occurring in 2033, 2035, and 2037. So, why has it taken us so long to go back to the moon? Well, simply put, the Apollo program and everything leading up to it was very expensive. It represented a titanic effort. There's a reason why words like moonshot or sayings like shoot for the moon have remained in our vocabulary. They're all about playing the long odds, taking the long view, and risking everything on one major gamble. Getting to space, shooting for the moon, these were a matter of national prestige, but also seen as a matter of national security. Whoever had dominance in space would be assured dominance on Earth. In short, Cold War rivalry was a major driving force behind all these accomplishments in spaceflight. And while these accomplishments were immeasurable, they didn't result in any kind of lasting infrastructure. When the Apollo program ended, there were no space stations in orbit of Earth or around the Moon, no bases on the lunar surface, no refueling depots, nothing that would allow for a return to the Moon in short order. These things have been built since the closing of the Apollo era, and will be built in the coming years, if all goes according to plan. In the end, the long-awaited return to the moon and the next great leap going to Mars couldn't have happened any other way. It would be unrealistic to think that during the Cold War, the Soviets and the United States could have put aside their rivalries and chosen a slower, more gradual build-up towards the moon, something that involved the creation of space stations at both ends, reusable spacecraft, and probably not making the moon landing until the 1980s. Conceivably, missions to Mars could have been conducted by 2000 in this scenario, but again, it's simply not realistic. Things happened the way they did for a reason, and now they are happening again. Only this time, we are going back in such a way that we'll be able to keep going back and to take the next great leap to Mars, with any luck, we'll be able to send follow-up missions that won't have to wait decades to happen. I'm Matt Williams. This has been Stories from Space.